0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, 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 and you are Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. Welcome to our program this week. We thank our producer-engineer, Dave Armbruster. We thank all of our friends for hosting this podcast on the Believe Network and for believing in this show. Things have been going very, very well. Hope you enjoyed the Johnny Bench two-part series recently. Today, uh, an old broadcast partner of mine, and I know we've had a few of those. I mean, that's when you know you're lucky enough to hang around for a while. I'm trying to think of some of the guys we've interviewed on this show already that were partners of mine at one time or another. We've had Troy Aikman. We've had Brian Billick. We've had Chris Spielman. We've had um, Sean Casey. We've had Chris Welsh. We've had Jeff Brantley. Yeah, I mean, man. And today's another one. Um, and we're going to get another one coming to speak. One of our guests coming up has got to be Mark Grace. He was another one. But that 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 might be a nine-part series. Um, but today it's Steve Lyons. Steve Psycho Lyons. He was as popular a guy on uh, network television baseball as Fox has ever had, going back to when it started in 1998. Actually, started in 96. Uh, our first World Series at Fox, I believe, was two years later. Uh, but anyway, uh, he was my partner for better than uh, 12 years, almost 12 years, and um, had a good career. You know, fringe guy, hung on, uh, but became larger than life on television. And then his, his, uh, his career in broadcasting came crashing down um, on an October night in uh, Detroit, Michigan in 2006. At least it did for Fox. We'll talk about that and more with Steve Lyons coming up next. And I always have to thank our good friend Mike Reed for all the music that he personally wrote himself for this show. We're back in a moment. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details, or for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Stephen John Lyons was born in Tacoma, Washington in June of 1960. Hard to believe that Steve Lyons is now 61 years young. His father, Richard Lyons, a star athlete back in Massachusetts, And he influenced his son tremendously to play baseball. After graduating from Beaverton High School in 1978, Steve Lyons attended Oregon State University on a baseball scholarship after his junior year, a number one pick, 19th overall by the Boston Red Sox in the 1981 Major League Draft. After playing three and a half years in the minors, Steve Lyons, was promoted to the Red Sox in 1985, made his major league debut in April of that year. He became Boston's regular center fielder, playing in 135 games and hit 264. The following year, he was traded for Hall of Famer Steve or Tom Seaver to the Chicago White Sox, where he would spend the next six years. In his career, he also had stops in Atlanta, Montreal, but three more stops with his original team, the Boston Red Sox. His personality, outgoing personality, earned him the nickname Psycho. We'll talk more about that later. I mean, he'd play hangman and tic-tac-toe out on the infield dirt with opposing players during the course of a game. You may remember once he played a game where he pulled his pants down to empty out some dirt from his uniform after sliding into a base and realized, oh my, there's 14,000 people here. After his retirement, he became an instant TV star at Fox Sports. He called several division series, league championship series with my partner for better than a decade. He would also broadcast for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Arizona Diamondbacks, and Boston Red Sox. He is the father of three, Kristen, Corey, and Alexandra. And these days, he does his own podcast. It's called This Is Our Effing Podcast. And they cover primarily the Boston Red Sox along with Sean McAdam on this very network the Believe Network. All right, Steve Lyons, uh, all those things I just mentioned, what did I forget or mo- what are you most proud of?
1: Well, I tell you, it was such a great introduction. I think we're all done. We're, we're <laughs> done with the show. There's no more time left. <laughs> uh, you know, I think certainly being a father of three daughters is, is kind of the highlight of, of anybody's life um, uh, professionally. Asked, you know, I, I'm not sure that anyone's ever actually put that question to me. I guess. You know, I've I've always kind of uh belittled my baseball career. I think uh you know, I always was pretty self-deprecating about it. Um I knew I wasn't a great player, but I also knew that I busted my ass to be an average player. Um but then on top of which, you know, you know, working with you and working at Fox and and getting to the top of another very elite field, yeah. as I, I as I look back, something to be very much proud of, I was not only the at the top of a very elite field playing Major League Baseball, but then also was, you know, uh, kind of a main cog in um, the Fox Network doing baseball, and and was at the top of that as well. So that's you know certainly something to look back on and, and be happy about.
0: I want to go back to growing up um, when you grew up in Oregon. I mentioned you were born in Washington, but uh, you know what? What was life like? I think there's so many people in this country, and and I would be included in this. I've been to Seattle many, many times, been to different parts of Washington, but have never set foot in the state of Oregon in my life. You're growing up back there in the late 70s, uh, early 80s. What what was life like at the Lions household every day?
1: You know, it was certainly a pretty simple existence. Um, You know, I didn't grow up with a a lot of money. I I think I out-earned my father when I was 21 years old, Um, but... Sports was the main focal point. I had three brothers. Um, you know, uh, my one of my older brothers, my oldest brother wasn't really an athlete at all, but my, my next older brother certainly was um, and uh, influenced me greatly. Uh, my father's influence, you know, I guess the best way to describe the way we grew up, even though it rained on us almost every day, it rained nine months out of the year in Oregon. My dad said he was kicking himself his whole life, that he didn't move down to California where the sun shines. He said maybe I'd have been a better player. But, you know, Mother's Day for us was my dad pitching, me hitting, and my mom standing in center field shagging balls and throwing them back so I could hit them again. (laughs) It wasn't like we were making her breakfast in bed or anything. It was like, hey, mom, let's shag some balls.
0: You know, uh, your, your dad's influence, obviously, being a, a, a great athlete himself uh, as a youngster through high school and so forth. But, you know, I'm curious in, in all the years we worked together, and, I mean, heck, you and I traveled for years and years and years and years, whether it was doing local games with the Diamondbacks, whether it was doing Fox every weekend and the playoffs and all the trips we made. But I, I've never asked you the question. You have just such the, this, this gregarious personality, um did that come from your dad your mom combination of the two brother where did that come from
1: yeah i think it would be a combination of my dad and my mom my dad um well even as you probably realize you know at at the end uh when my dad he lives in fort wayne indiana he doesn't get around much anymore he's 85 years old but earlier when we'd come to play in cincinnati he'd meet us there yep and uh you know he became the mayor of 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 the stadium in cincinnati everybody knew who he was you know he wandered around he talked to people and so he was always that kind of an outgoing personality um i think i learned that from him Um, but my mom even though my mom was like four ten and weighed 85 pounds uh one of the pound for pound strongest women you'll ever see in your life not only physically but mentally and and personality wise so there was a pretty good combination there and i think i learned a lot from both of them
0: you went to oregon state and you know that that's regarded as one of the premier baseball programs in the country these days you mentioned earlier about being a part of something fox at the very beginning but really you were a part of helping put oregon state baseball on the map they had gone, you know, in, in getting ready for this interview, they had gone something like 35, 40 years until you got there where they had not made an NCAA tournament. And then when you were there, you're playing in it every year.
1: Well, this, you know, that program really turned around um, when Pat Casey took over too and, you know, finally started to become a national power. Really, well, all it came down to was him um, having kids from the Pacific Northwest have a belief in themselves. Uh, because when I grew up and when I was playing there, you know, people would say, you guys play baseball in Oregon. You're not playing very good quality baseball. It rains on you all the time. Nobody knows if you can hit a slider. And those were all the words from the scout who tried to sign me when the Red Sox drafted me, you know. He's like, you guys don't know what you're doing up here. And Casey took that program and said, look, you guys can play. And, and, and you start believing in yourself a little bit, and I'm going to pick the best talent out of these two states, and we're going to win some games. You know, they're the national title winners in, in 06 and 07. They probably had the best team in the country in 2012 and, and got beat uh, in a, in, a, in the College World Series. And then they won again in 18. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly a, a powerhouse now. Not so much when I was there, but it was kind of the basis was, was headed in the right direction. And still, they basically recruit kids literally from the state of Oregon and Washington. And that's about it. About ninety-five percent of the kids come out of those two states, and you know they're not they're not going down into Texas, they're not going down into South Florida to get their players. It's homegrown talent, and and they they turn things around and and they make the best of it.
0: You know when you get drafted by uh, the Red Sox in the first round, nineteenth overall. I mentioned uh, already. I mean not only the thrill of being a, a drafted as a major league player, drafted in the first round, all that kind of thing, but with your dad's upbringing in Massachusetts, that that had to hold, um, you know, an even more special place, right?
1: Oh, it was unbelievable. I, it was, you know, the chances of something like that happening are, 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 are not great. And, you know, grew up in Oregon as a Red Sox fan because my father was from Boston and a big Red Sox fan. Uh, you know, and, and back then it was either, you know, it was Joe Garagioli and, and
0: Tony Cooper sure. on the
1: Saturday game of the week. And if, if the Red Sox weren't playing, then we just didn't watch, we'd go out and play ourselves. And, but, you know, we're kind of hoping the Red Sox would be the Saturday game. And, you know, I, I grew up, you know, a big Yaz fan, a big Fred Lynn fan. And, you know, those were big influences over how I uh, tried to pattern my game as well. And, Uh, But my dad was over the moon when we found out. And, you know, you find out instantly these days, you know, the draft is on TV. I didn't realize that I'd been drafted in the first round until the next day. Because wow. uh, we didn't see anything, we 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 didn't realize there was, you know, communication wasn't that great, and I had changed departments in the middle of my junior year, and so the scouting bureau had a bad address for me, and they couldn't get hold of me, so I didn't even know I'd been drafted until the next day.
0: <laughs> that's ama- that, That's just absolutely amazing. Uh, it, it had to be indescribable though. You 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 know, you're you're in the minor leagues for about three years, you turn 24. Now you're putting on a Boston Red Sox uniform and you're walking out onto the field at Fenway park. I'm kind of curious, you know, what do you remember about that? Probably everything or maybe nothing. And, and, and was that the first time you had ever been to Fenway when you made the major league club?
1: You know, that that's uh, it's an excellent question because I may be, I may be one of very few people in the history of the game to have, I, 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 was, I didn't play that day. I sat on the bench, but I was a member of the team of the first Major League Baseball game I ever saw. Wow. I never went to any Major League Baseball games. Growing up in Oregon, uh, I did see the 1979 All-Star game. Uh, me and a couple of girls that I knew from high school drove up and watched uh, the 79 All-Star game in Seattle. I was on the right field foul pole when Dave Parker threw the guy out at home plate other than that I'd never even seen a major league game before and then I I made the team uh, out of spring training in April and I I threw open the curtains to my hotel room that day and there was about four inches of snow on the ground on opening day (laughs) and went to the ballpark Uh, they cleared the snow off I mean I knew I wasn't going to be playing and the thing that I remember the most about it is that I was doing sprints out in the outfield anyway and uh, I got fined because I had eye black on and wasn't in the starting lineup.
0: <laughs> you're <laughs> kidding me. Come on. Oh yeah.
1: Kangaroo court. Don Baylor got me for having eye black on and not being in the game.
0: Oh, that that is a great story. Um, a year <laughs> later, you're traded for Tom Seaver. Now here you are. Number one pick. Um, you get to the big leagues with Boston, his team you grew up rooting for, and now all of a sudden they trade you. They not only trade you, but they trade you for Tom Seaver. Now, he was getting near the end there, but nonetheless, it's Tom Seaver. Were you bummed you were traded from Boston, or did you feel like, hey, this is a great opportunity now with the White Sox?
1: Yeah, well, both, because I think when I got traded, we were like nine games out in front in our division, and you know, it wasn't really a matter of whether or not the Red Sox were going to make the playoffs. It would be how far they could get, and remember, this is the 86 team that eventually got beat by the ground ball that went through Buckner's legs, yep. but, you know, that was a that was a team where we knew we were going to win every night. It was a great experience to play on, but I wasn't getting that much playing time, and uh, you know, I thought of I thought it would be a great opportunity to go to the White Sox. That wasn't as good a team at the time. I thought I'd have a better opportunity to establish my own career as a player, um, which didn't really work out all that well either. I mean, I really believe that it was Tony La Russa who was trying to trade for me, and they fired him the day before they made the deal. And so I ended up playing for Jim Fregosi and, you know, he, he didn't even know who I was and I didn't really get a great opportunity under him. And so I struggled, you know, for the five years that I was there, I did play more off and on as time went on, but I thought it was going to be a better deal for me, but it, you know, kind of just turned out as being, you know, I, I, I got traded and, and then had to like turn around scuffle some more to try to get more playing time
0: you know you you were such an incredibly versatile player and it speaks volumes to your athleticism and, and for your mental capacity and, and and baseball iq i guess for lack of a better term you know you played every position during your entire career in fact uh, I, I was doing the game where you once played it was an exhibition game back before there was uh interleague play when i was doing the cubs games you were playing for the white sox And to have a little fun in that game, they called it the Windy City Classic, you played every position on the field in one game. You know, my question for you would be, you know, there are guys like Chris Bryant and and Javier Baez in recent years that might play two, three different positions maybe, but you were able to play them all. How does a guy stay sharp when when you you know there's a chance that you could go into a game and play anywhere?
1: Yeah, I think it was a little different at that time of, the, of, of in my era. You know, you can remember back to a guy like Tony Phillips, who was a super utility player, who was a guy who literally played every day, but never the same position. I was kind of hoping that I could evolve into that kind of a thing, but it was always my bat that held me back. I could catch the ball at, at virtually any position. I grew up my whole life being a center fielder. Um, I was converted to a shortstop in my college career because my head coach said, you're my best athlete and I don't have a shortstop, so I'm going to make you into one. So when you have the basis of being a center fielder and a shortstop, that pretty much gives you the opportunity to play anywhere else except for pitcher and catcher. And, you know, as my career went on with the White Sox, they told me that I needed to learn how to be an emergency catcher. So I showed up at spring training every year with the pitchers and catchers to learn that position and then I got a chance to pitch five innings in the big leagues too. So, you know, the reason why I played all nine positions in one game was because there was only two other guys in the history of the game that had ever done it. And that was uh campy campaneras and Cesar Tovar. And they had done it so long ago. It was like in the sixties. And as you mentioned, that was before the advent of interleague play. So it was an exhibition game, but it was every year, the White Sox played the Cubs and, you know, people can tell me it was an exhibition game until they're blue in the face, but it doesn't mean anything to me because to me that was a major league game that we were trying to win, and I got a chance to play all nine positions in it. And so they can tell me it was an exhibition game all they want, but I- I'll never believe it.
0: Absolutely, I'm with you all the way. I did that game, and th- and people don't understand that that was played like for real because the Cubs and the White Sox that was the only time that they would play, and they did it every year. Uh, I remember the one year Michael Jordan played in that game and I mean it, it was just it was such an electric atmosphere it was phenom- phenomenal. Yeah that but, was
1: in Wrigley and we, we went through a period where we kind of dominated that game a lot I think most of the five years I was there uh, we won most of those games but it was in Wrigley it was a great time we won that game 5-3 it's it's nice to know that if you're doing kind of a stunt like that that you still are able to pull off the win and you got to remember, it was a pretty tough job for Jeff Torborg, the manager, too, because every time I moved, other guys had to move. So there were, <laughs> even though I played all nine positions, there were guys in that game that played like three and four positions as well.
0: In July the 16th of 1990, you've been asked about this 500,000 times, so now you can add on one more time. You, you beat out a bunt hit, you go diving into uh, first base, uh, you pop up. Like a lot of guys, you start dusting yourself up. But in your case, you pull the pants down, and you're getting the dirt out. And then what?
1: (laughs) I tell everybody I needed a date. I don't know. Uh,
0: (laughs) Well, I'm not sure that would have helped you much. Yeah, I got a lot of calls. (laughs) Yeah. You know, some of them from women. Right. That's right. That's right.
1: (laughs) It was just a brain cramp, you know. I I mean, I really believe – I think if we had replay back then, I thought it was out. And I never think I'm out. You know, if there's a close play at first, I was the kind of guy that I needed to be safe. And uh, I thought I was out. and They called me safe. And uh, Dan Evans was the umpire. And Cecil Fielder was the first baseman. And Dan Petrie was the pitcher. So they're all standing right there because uh, Evans was covering the base. Or or Petrie was covering the base. And Evans was the umpire. And he called me safe. And so there was a lot of choice words being spoken uh, because they all thought I was out. And I thought I was out. But I started listening to their conversation and literally forgot that I was still standing on the field with all that dirt running down the, my pants. It doesn't feel that comfortable. And so I just started <laughs> unbuttoning my pants to get it out and just drop the pants like it, You know, normally if you're out, you run down the, you know, four sure. dirt out steps, you go up under the the overhang there, and you, you do that. And I just forgot I was still on the field. But I realized pretty quickly that I was.
0: You know what, though? Uh, I, I remember when that happened. And, you know, all of a sudden – you know, you'd already been in the big leagues at this point for, you know, four or five years and and, and five, six years. And, and now all of a sudden, everybody from coast to coast, and it's hard for a lot of people to understand now. I mean, this was really in the infancy of things like ESPN and there were no cell phones. There was no Internet. There was none of this kind of stuff going on. I can only imagine what that would be like today. But, I mean, you were overwhelmed with people who all of a sudden wanted to talk to you about this. Were were you embarrassed about it or just had fun with it? Where were you on that thing when all of a sudden the PR guy's coming up and saying, hey, this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy, they all want to talk to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, typical to me, I, I tried to have fun with it. I mean, it was an innocent mistake. I know that Jeff Torborg, who was managing the team, initially wasn't sure if he thought I did it on purpose, but Jeff, He's a pretty level-headed guy, and he under—you know—we had a little conversation about it. And I said, "Look, I just—I just lost train." I said, "You know, I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm a little bit of a crazy guy. I'm, I like to have fun, but I certainly have a healthy respect for the game of baseball. Where I, I didn't want to belittle what was going on, so anything like that would have been so out of character for me to try to do something like that on purpose. But I did 32 radio shows the next morning, and I did seven live. Sports newscast the next night at the ball game, um, and the weirdest thing was that Melito Perez we had come from New York, and Melito Perez had thrown a seven inning rain short no hitter uh, in Yankee Stadium like five days earlier, and nobody wanted to talk to him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Good>
1: <laughs> What's Lord. going on in this world when this guy throws a no-hitter and he barely gets any coverage out of it, and I pull my pants down and everyone in the world. I mean, David Letterman wanted me to come on on his show. Um, back then, I'm not even sure if it's still a magazine, but there was a magazine called Playgirl Magazine, which was, you know, <laughs> it was a, the, I don't know, it was the opposite of Playboy Magazine, I guess. They wanted me to do some kind of spread in their magazine It was it was some really quirky weird things that came out of it. Certainly everybody asked me about it. I've been asked about it I would say nearly every day, probably five times a week since nineteen ninety. and you know, it's one of those quirky things that you're known for. I'd certainly rather be known for a game seven World Series game winning home run. Yeah. But that was never in the cards for me. So I think Reggie used to say even bad publicity is good publicity and if had I not done that, um, my career would have been much more obscure. You know, people do remember it, and they remember me for it, and that helps, I guess, in any way.
0: Well, I mean, I, 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 there's no question it had to help for people who all of a sudden now, as you move into the next phase of your life and you're uh, getting out of baseball, uh, you retire from the game. Uh, mentioned, you know, you, you end up in Boston four different times. I mean, that in and of itself <laughs> speaks volumes. You know, I mean, I, I really mean this. You know, I, I say all the time, and I try to tell our kids, and I and I used to tell young players when I used to talk to them a lot, don't burn any bridges. I mean, because you never know when that team that had you before, if they think you're a good guy and you're you're a friend, serviceable player at that point later in your career, maybe they want you to come back and, and hang around and be a good influence on the on the bench. That's an important thing, but. You know, to, to to now begin your broadcast career, and you said it earlier, you know, you're there at the infancy of Fox. I was there at the infancy of Fox. You and I weren't working together yet, but it was very early on when there was this Fox Sports Net and the best damn sports show period, and all this stuff is going on in L.A. There will never be another time in television – Uh, like that was for those of us who were fortunate enough to be at Fox, because it was the true startup on such an incredibly high level. And you were one of the centerpiece guys, really, if not the centerpiece guy, on that entire cable side of Fox Sports.
1: Yeah, you know, it it was an excellent opportunity, and I begged my way into it. I, I never thought I'd get an opportunity to be a broadcaster because I wasn't a great player. And people are like, well, who's this guy? And, you know, why should we listen to him? But I always felt like I played the game right, and I knew the game, and I had a strong opinion about a lot of different things in the game. Not necessarily the most popular opinion, but people thought it was a loose cannon. But I certainly always was smart enough to be able to back up the ideas that I had. You know, if I said something that might have been a little bit off the wall, I had three or four reasons why, why I say it or why I would think that way. Mm-hmm. And so I could always back up my opinions. And I begged them early on when I realized that I had a good audition and that I thought there was a pretty good chance that I would be hired with them. I thought that they were going to put me because we were doing four games a week then. And I thought they were going to put me on the number four team to do games that would go to about 7% of the country. And so I begged them to put me on the pre and post game show, which was at that time, like, I think only a half an hour long, but it was nationwide. It was going to everywhere. So I thought that would be my best opportunity to show people who I was, what I was about and, and, you know, what I thought about the game. And so after about four or five years of that, and then, of course, it was a a huge break for me when Bob Brentley got the managing job uh, at the Arizona Diamondbacks, and then I slid in to do games with you, which I was, uh, you know, to to this day, and, you know, I don't think you and I are going to spend a lot of time reminiscing about, you know, what we did together as broadcasters, but I've never once in before or after ever worked with a more professional, better broadcaster than you are and who you were to me, it was, it, was, it was glory for me because that's what you gave me. And one of the first things you said to me was, this is your show, Steve. You go get them. You never have one ounce of ego in your broadcast, and all you wanted to do was a good show and put me on a pedestal. And that was unbelievable to me. I've never had anything like that before since. And, uh, you know, maybe there's still time. I'd love to be able to do it again.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt. I was talking about that with my wife this morning. You know, we had so many great days, and, and then we had a day which I've always considered to be one of the darkest days of my life professionally. You and I are doing – uh with Lou Pinella, he joined us uh, for the 2006. We would bring in a third guy who was still current and active in the game once the league championship series started. Uh, you know, we had Al Leiter with us when we did the, the 2003 league championship series, the Marlins and the Cubs. In 2006, we're doing the American League championship series. Uh, we do the first two games, and now here comes game three. It's you and me, Lou Pinella. Uh, Lou starts joking around. Of course, he's of Spanish descent, and he uses an analogy about, you know, finding a wallet, and then he starts speaking some Spanish. And then the next thing you know, you're having some fun about his Spanglish and that now all of a sudden you can't find your wallet. Well, somewhere, somehow, someway, and, and to this day, here we are, 15 years later, I still try to think about who in their right mind could connect these dots to make it happen, but somebody out there did, calls Fox Sports, Fox makes a decision as you and I are sitting. And I want people to think about this now for a minute. We are sitting at a restaurant. Steve Lyons, Lou Piniella, Jim Lynch, our director, Jeff Gowan, our producer, a couple of other members of our crew. We feel like we're coming off a really good Game 3 broadcast. Um, And then all of a sudden, we're sitting at dinner. This was right when cell phones were really starting to become, uh, you know, prevalent. And you get a phone call that you are fired um, because of this connecting the dots um, sort of thing. You know, I always felt like, and Penella, by the way, came to your defense immediately and said, there is no way on God's earth that this guy has a bigoted bone in his body. And as I look back on it now, I really believe this, Steve. I, I really believe that you were the first casualty, or at least one that I knew, of what we now know as political correctness or the cancel culture. Have you have you ever thought about that at all? Yeah. I mean, I've been forced to, obviously it was, uh, um,
1: I, I didn't think I'd get emotional about it. Now I know I was back then. I mean, one of the worst days of my life too. Sure, Absolutely. Sure, sure. Um, career gone basically. Um, but, but it really wasn't, it didn't happen that way. It could have. And the reason why, you know, I, I've never apologized for that day because I refuse to believe that I did anything. I, wrong. I agree with you hundred percent,
0: hundred percent.
1: And you know, most people apologize for something that happens because uh, they got caught doing something wrong. It's a lot of apologies are rarely, um, heartfelt. Um, and you're right. I mean, number one, I thought Lou was Italian (laughs) my whole life. I thought (laughs) thought Peniela was an Italian name. And for anyone to think that I was trying to say that if you were a Spanish speaking person, you would steal my wallet. You're right. Someone walked up to me one day and said, anybody who can connect the dots in that way, they are a racist because that's the way they're thinking of it. And I, I certainly wasn't. I mean, you know, th- this is at a time when I'm working for the Los Angeles Dodgers and 80% of their audience is Hispanic. And I'm well-liked there and had been for 10 years. No problems whatsoever. Um, I, I, it, the weirdest thing to me was I got fired from the Fox network. I, at the same time, had a contract and was working for Fox Sports Net the cable side of Fox Sports, and, and was also working for the Dodgers. I had three separate contracts. The other two entities did not fire me. When a major network fires you, everyone else gets in line, and they fire you as well. Um, <laughs> incredibly, the cable side of Fox doesn't fire me, and the Dodgers don't fire me. So that, to me, let me know that I didn't do anything wrong but the Fox gig was easily the biggest, most important job. I mean, the way I look at it, and I know things have changed a lot, but had things continued to roll along the way they were for you and I, uh, I'd be doing World Series games right now. Yep. You know, once, once McCarver uh, kind of slid away and retired, I was clearly the number two guy in the organization from that point on. I would have been the logical choice to slide right over and, and do World Series games. And, uh, you know, what might've been, I guess, you know? Well,
0: you know, I mean, it, it, well, there's no doubt about it. And I just, you know, look, there are things that people say, heck what I said on the air. I mean, I can understand in a heartbeat. I didn't like it. It hurts. Uh, I was off the air, uh, used a homophobic slur. Uh, they fire me. I get it. I get it. Do I wish somebody would have given me a little more time, you know, to try and make up and make amends for that? Yeah, I do. But, but I understand that what you did, um, (laughs) To this day, I I just scratch my head. You know, it's funny because, you know, the game of baseball has changed so much, and I think that trickles all the way down now to even the broadcasters they hire. And I've said this 300,000 times. Harry Carey, Marty Brenneman, uh, Tom Brenneman, Steve Lyons. There are so many guys in this day and age – that probably would not be hired by a Major League Baseball team because everybody is so uptight and so worried about any personality. I'm not talking about saying bad names and calling people bad names and being a racist or a home. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about whether it's criticism of players – whether it's having fun and outrageous stuff. And Harry Carey, you were in Chicago. I was working with a guy every day. You know, hey, look at the kid in the sombrero. I mean, somebody would take that today as racist. And that was the last thing in the world Harry ever was. You agree with me on this with teams today and and who they're hiring?
1: Absolutely. And and it's too bad because the broadcast suffers. I mean, you know, we used to say it all the time. Hey, that, that that guy's one of the most boring announcers I've ever heard. And guess what? He'll have his job for 40 years he's never going to say anything he's never going to do anything he's never going to have that much fun but he's going to show up and collect the check every day and and nothing is ever going to be even slightly controversial with the guy I mean I guess the tough part that I had with Fox was that I was there for 11 years it wasn't like I was some weekend hack that they hired and they literally when when they hired me told me to be the funny one, be the controversial guy, say what you want, do, you know, go out there and stir it up a little bit. And then the one time I do it and they don't like it, I'm fired. I was like, really? I mean, the the, the scary part about that was I flew home the next day and you guys had a, a, a ball game the next day to do. And I knew I was being fired the whole time I'm flying home and I'm sitting in David Hill's office with Ed Gorin sitting there. And while I'm being fired, Your broadcast is on, and I can't take my eyes off the game because that's who I am because I loved it so much, and I'm being fired at the same time, and all I want to know is what the score of the game is.
0: Hmm. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that, uh, that you were working for the Dodgers at the time. You also worked with me on the Arizona Diamondbacks games. You've done Boston Red Sox games. And, and I found this when I went from Arizona to Cincinnati, um, uh, you know, 14, 15 years ago. It is so dramatically different, in my opinion. And I'm curious as to hear your opinion. There is such an unbelievable difference in the audience and the way you can broadcast a Dodger game and their audience – as opposed to the Boston Red Sox fan. It it really is incredible, isn't it? Or or do you think that there's no difference at all? Well, I'm not sure which direction you're headed. What I mean is, what I mean is, I I always found that in Arizona, and maybe it's because we were a new franchise um, and and, and we were going to get our tails kicked a lot. Um, that we could go out and be outrageous, whether it was me and Bob Brindley, whether it was you and me, whether it was me and Jim Traber, Mark Grace, whoever it was through the years and all those years we were out there together, that I think you could have a lot more fun, to be honest with you, to, to, to some audiences perhaps out West, more than you could with the old, you know, been around forever, Boston Red Sox fan base, Cincinnati Reds fan base. You agree with that or disagree?
1: Yeah, I think you're right to a certain extent. And I'll give you a couple examples. Um, Don Arsillo, who is one of the most beloved uh, play-by-play announcers the Red Sox ever had, uh, was here for 15 years and got let go for literally no reason at all. And the scuttlebutt was, you know, this was like back-to-back bad Red Sox seasons. And they basically said they giggled too much. I'm like, what are you doing? You're getting beat 8-2 to two in, the, in the third inning. And you know, bases are loaded against you, and they're threatening to score more runs. If you're not going to have fun for the next three hours while you're getting your butt kicked, then no one's going to watch. Yep. Um, uh, and, and I'll use myself as an example. I was with the Red Sox for seven years. Uh, they won a World Series in eighteen, and they finished in in last place three of the seven years that I was there. Boston is a hard-nosed, blue-collar town similar to New York. And they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear about your losing. They want to know why. And to a certain extent, I was fairly critical of a team that had a $220 million payroll finishing in last place. Not sure if there's a reason for that. You got to play better. You're expected more. The fans expect more. But I'm not working there anymore. And through the grapevine I heard was because I was too critical. Now, to me, That's got to be an organization that's a little bit out of touch with their fan base, who is very, very critical. So I was very well liked by the fans, and yet after seven years, I don't have a job there anymore.
0: You are doing a podcast now um, with Sean McAdam, a guy who's been a beat writer there for a long, long time. What's that like for you? I mean, you're still covering the team on 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 a weekly basis, daily basis, and knowing what's going on. Have you enjoyed it?
1: You know, I'm, I'm kind of dipping my toes into it. Um, I think it's a it's a pretty straightforward podcast. I would think that you would look at me and say, "I'm not sure that that's the direction you would have headed." I think I wanted to, I think I want to do something a little more off the wall, uh, a little more creative. It's basically a Red Sox report, you know, weekly, yep. uh, which is fine. Kind of keeps me involved in in knowing what's going on there, but it's not necessarily my personality of something that. Um, you know, I, I could evolve into something different. Uh, you know, I just I just spent three weeks going across the country in Wisconsin and doing things that I've never been able to do in my life. Uh, I sat on the 4th of July on a pontoon boat on a lake watching the fireworks. Uh, I can count on one hand the number of Saturday afternoon barbecues I've ever been into in, in, in my lifetime because mm-hmm. you and I have always worked every day of the summer where you don't actually get to enjoy a summer. Um, I've done things uh, in this time off that I've never experienced in my life. And it's been, it's been awesome. And, and to me, it's a road show. Like I, I have a good friend of mine who's more crazy than I am. And we keep looking at each other like, this is a show. This is a, this is a show that you call game time or road game. And it's just us going across the country, stopping at different places, talking to different people, no script, no nothing and uh y- you know, I see myself doing something more like that mm
0: mm-hmm. oh absolutely I could see that too and 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 before we wrap it up, I mean, you're a granddad now i mean i you know I said to my wife this morning, we were coming over to tape it, and I said, you know life's funny man, uh you know because and, and, and for people who have never done it before, maybe they've done it in their business or uh, in, in whatever it might be where, you know, a lot of times business people, they're traveling by themselves and they're, they're going to this place and they're going to that place and they're sitting in a hotel bar by themselves having a beer at 1030 at night and they get up and do the whole thing again tomorrow. You know, w- we had basically like a traveling roadshow of, of like 20, 20 guys that, that, that we were spending time with and I'm just like, man, those were such great days. Uh, now you're doing this and you're a granddad and everybody tells me being a granddad is like the greatest thing in the world. I mean, is it the greatest thing in the world? Well, you know, you, you got to remember for me, it happened a long time ago. Yeah, I know. I, I know.
1: Granddad for a long time. So yeah, basically my grandson's an adult now, you know, he's 22 years old. And so, yeah, it was fun. Uh, I, I missed a lot of it because of being on that road, you know, for six straight months. Um, and Anthony, my grandson, grew up in Arizona when I was basically living in California. So the proximity wasn't great, but you know. And then, then Anthony got sick. He had he had leukemia for four years. that beat the crap out of him, and then in the end, he beat the crap out of it. Uh, and, he, and he had he had the the guts. Uh, you know, he got leukemia when he was 14. When he was in remission in 18. Think about this. This is basically a 14-year-old kid who who. You know, threw up fifteen times a day for the last mm. four years. So he he didn't grow up. He wasn't he wasn't really an eighteen year old kid. He was still fourteen. He announced to everybody that he was going to New York. I'm like, what are you going to do in New York? Because I, I don't know. I'll figure it out. I said, who do you know in New York? Nobody. I said, w- <laughs> really, he goes to New York. He meets a, an agent in a week. Two weeks later, he's walking in fashion shows. He's been to Milan, Paris. He's done you know almost everything you can do in modeling with the exception of getting one of those big contracts where it really pays the bill. Right. So he's scuffling along being a model, but doing what he wants to do. So, uh, you know, he's an adult now and he, he I mean, he's had an amazing life and, uh, you kind of get to sit back there and watch it.
0: Well, Steve, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I, I hope we get that. You, you brought it up earlier. I hope we get that, that opportunity again to, to broadcast games together. Cause man, we had, uh, we had so much fun and I thought we did a pretty decent job. And, and I think most other people felt like that too, but, uh, Thanks for the time today, my man. I miss you. I miss you, too. I'll do it anytime. All right, brother. God bless you. Steve Lyons, kind enough to join us uh, on this week, Dialed In. I tell you what, man, uh, we – boy, did we have some fun. Um, it's hard to believe, man. Life goes by. Every one of you know what I'm talking about. You know, you wake up one morning for literally – for me, it was today. I wake up, and, and I say to my wife, Polly, I'm like, I cannot believe – that this guy was such a huge part of my life professionally personally 12 years every saturday we traveled together every weekend different cities across the country did the diamondbacks games for about a three-year run there before he went to the dodgers and uh and now i haven't seen him in 10 years i mean man thank you for the memory steve lyons All right. Thanks for joining us on Dialed In. As always, we thank our producer-engineer, Dave Armbruster. We thank the folks at the Believe Network. And I'm Tom Brenneman. We'll catch you next week. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Believe.